The reading today is out of Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name forever. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, O oh, you saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if you remember the first time you tasted your favorite food. I don't know if I remember. Maybe you always grew up with it, so you, you don't remember the first tasting of it. But there uh, is a time that stands in kind of lore in my own mind. It was when we went to an, a restaurant in Oklahoma City that's no longer there. It's called Applewoods. Does anybody know old Applewoods? Let's see, we got Applewoods. And they would, for their, like, every table, they would give you, bring you hot, fresh apple fritters. And I don't know how long it was ago that they closed, but man, do I always think that that would be the best possible thing that I could eat ever. And once you taste something like that, you, you, you can't describe, I can't tell you how good the apple fritters are at Applewoods. Like I just, I couldn't describe it to you well enough to, to get you to the delight that I had. I would only be able to say, well, you just got to go and try it for yourself. You have to experience it. Taste is one of those things that that often is not easily described, you, you just have to, to jump in and do it. Uh, and once you experience it, then there's, there's no going back. And, and David does that through Psalm 34 today. He, he says, I want you, as the people of God, I want you to taste something today. I want you to see something today, just as I have. Like I, I've been through this experience, but, but I want to share it with you that you might taste and see the same kinds of things that I had. And so he wants to lead them into this experience he wants them to personally take hold of some of the things that have happened to him and, and know that they can be true for their own lives as well. And so what David is doing in Psalm 34 is he's helping God's people and to form God's people who, who are people who both seek the Lord and walk in the fear of the Lord. 
I mean, these are common threads throughout the scripture. And in Psalm 34, he helps bring some definition to, to them seeking the Lord and walking in the fear of the Lord. And he uses a really unique story in his lifetime to do it. Like Psalm 34 is a unique psalm because it gives us at the beginning in this, this superscription, uh, which we would take as inspired words, uh, part of the setting of, of what he's talking about in Psalm 34. So the setting is given to us in this superscription. It says of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. You know, what's interesting about this superscription is if you look into the life of David, what name you're not going to find is Abimelech. That name is nowhere in the time of David. Abimelech, you will find in the book of Genesis. This was a, a Philistine king during the time of Abraham and Isaac. And yet still David wasn't lying when he said that this was talking about Abimelech. This could have been the same, or not the same person, but a king and the king's name during David's time too. What David refers to is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. It seems to match and fit the description of the superscription of Psalm 34. And in 1 Samuel 21, there is a king there that's a Philistine king whose name is Achish. Now, now, maybe Achish is, is almost like a throne name, like Pharaoh, and Abimelech would be his specific particular name, so maybe that's the difference in the names. That would explain why in the superscription he would use Abimelech, but he seems to refer to 1 Samuel 21 and this episode with Achish, all right? And it, why, why would you use Abimelech then further if it seems more confusing to the people that might know some of your story. Well, I think that David is using Abimelech as a way to also tie himself to part of a bigger story. Abimelech would be a name that you could look up in Genesis. You could find that in the law. You could find it in the Torah. You wouldn't find it in David's story. He wouldn't have been able to say the same kinds of things of his own story, but you would have found it in a bigger story. And perhaps, and it seems like all the way through Psalm 34, David is trying to take God's people from his story to a bigger story, from the story of this God who's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to himself and to them. He's trying to extend it out. And so possibly that's exactly what he's doing here, tying his story to a bigger story so that they can do the exact same thing. In other words, he doesn't want his deliverance that he found, that he writes of in Psalm 34, to be seen as his deliverance alone, to be seen as, as something that's unique only to him, but as part of the way that God delivers his people as he did then, as he's done in me, and as he's going to say he can do for you. And so he wants readers to hear and experience, to join in his praise for this deliverance that he gave when he speaks of Psalm 34 from, verse, or from 1 Samuel 21. So let's read uh, 1 Samuel 21's account of, of David before this king, this Philistine king. In 1 Samuel 21, verse 10 is where he starts. David rose and he fled from Saul and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Already right here, you, you need to know that this is really bad. Verse 10 shows us that something has gone really wrong. Saul is the king of Israel. David is an Israelite. These things should be, they should be friends. They should be able to like, here's one king protecting the one who's underneath him. But instead, David is fleeing from Saul. He, he is 
the one who's driven out by Saul because Saul is jealous of him. He knows that David's the next king. They sing of Saul. He kills his thousands. David his tens of thousands. And so he's starting to get this jealous spirit and heart in the midst of him. And he starts to persecute David. And the persecution gets so bad that David has to leave Israel. He has to flee for his life. And notice where he flees. Gath. Now that may not... Uh, ring any bells in you. But if you're familiar with David's story at all, you would have heard of the story of David and Goliath. And do you know where Goliath is from? Gath. The story of David and Goliath is that this champion, this mighty warrior, Philistine warrior, comes out from the city of Gath. They approach the armies of Israel, the armies of the living God. They defy them and said, Goliath comes out and says, so why don't you bring out somebody and they try to take me and then whoever wins will just serve that nation. And, and no one wants to fight him because they're scared. This guy is massive and a great warrior. And David, little David, you know, he pokes his head out like, I think I'll do it. Because you might have this great sword and, and you have all these things. You might be a great warrior, but I'm serving in the name of the living God. And so he comes there and, and he, he kills Goliath and he chops off his head and he takes his armor and his sword. Like this is a, a different kind of champion because he has the power of the Lord, right? And now the persecution in Israel is so bad from his own king that he goes to this place that's the hometown of Goliath. Like on the water tower, it says hometown of Goliath. And David's coming there as one who chopped off his head and was carrying it around and has his armor. I mean, this verse 10 is a really strange scene. It's so bad that he has to go to Gath. And the servants of Achish, they said to him, they, they identify David. He does, he, maybe he went in thinking they're not going to recognize me. It's been a while since I killed Goliath and did that whole thing. But they recognize him. Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another that Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens thousands? And David took those words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. And so he changed his behavior before them and he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see this man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so David, he departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So he goes from being driven by Saul because things are so bad at home, so bad in Israel, to, to Gath, the hometown of Goliath, and from there they recognize him and surely are going to take his life if, he's remained, if he remains there long enough to go flee for his life and to dwell in a cave. And that's the story that David is going to draw on for all that we have in Psalm 34. Like, this is a strange episode to write of and to write from. But what David does is he sees this episode in, in 1 Samuel 21 as a reason to praise the Lord, as an opportunity to praise the Lord, and as an opportunity not just for him to do it, but for God's people to praise the Lord. And so that's what he does. He calls them to praise, verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And he here's the call. Like, join me in this. Magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. 
first thing David does, and this happens often in the Psalms, it's so helpful for us and instructive for how we should pray. He turns their gaze upward. Like he points them up. Let's praise the Lord. Let's bless the Lord at all times. So Psalm 34, it is a thoroughly God-centered psalm. You, you can't go far a few words. You couldn't throw a rock without hitting the word, the Lord. It is all over. It's all about his work, his character, what he is doing in and through situations. He is the one who is on display here. And 1 Samuel 21, David is this man who's between a rock and a hard place, right? Like, I can have Saul chasing me down and wanting to kill me. I can go to Gath, where I know the Philistines surely want to kill me as well. And then he goes to a, a cave to stay alive, right? He hatches a plan in the middle of this to say, like, all right, Saul wants to kill me. This might be my only place that I can be. And so, oh, no, they recognize me. Now what do I do? And he hatches this plan to act insane, and he's able to escape. Like, that's what he's drawing from. And from that episode, he praises and boasts in something. He praises and boasts in the Lord. He, he doesn't boast in himself. Like that was some really quick thinking. He, he doesn't say, man, that was such a good idea. Nice touch with the spittle, by the way. Man, like you should have seen it. You, everyone would have thought I was insane. You know, like the way I had this working, like it was perfect. He, he doesn't boast in his own wit and say, like, man, I was, I was so smart. He doesn't say I was, I was talented. You know, I've been instructed the right way so that when we come to these situations, like, I know how to get out of it. He doesn't boast of his own effort or strength. He boasts in the Lord. And he says, let's magnify him together. Like, these are the ways that kings should be leading the people of God, just like that, to say, hey, look what God has done. Let's boast in him. It was all him. Let's, and let's do this together. Let's magnify the Lord together. He doesn't boast in himself. And then he, what he also doesn't do is he doesn't say, when he gets to that cave, like, he doesn't complain. Like, he says, the Lord has delivered me. And then he doesn't say, you deliver me to a cave? Is that the best you can do? Like, I'm trying to magnify you with other people here and you only brought me to a cave. And yet, no, he, he says, no, I'm, I'm glad. We, we can hear of this deliverance, even a deliverance to a cave, and be glad. And so what David is doing is he's looking back on this episode and he has this thoroughly theological, God-centered understanding of what happened there. He has this understanding that it's not about him and his story and what he did and didn't do. He sees God in the midst of all of it. This is God's story in and through 1 Samuel 21. He doesn't say, look at me, and he doesn't say, why me? He doesn't go either way to boast, look at me, or to complain, why me? He says, let's magnify God. Let's praise the Lord because he sees through this God-centered view. If he'd built his life, if he'd built his identity on his own power, on his own wit, on his own strength, then he might have a reason to come here and say, God did some things and I did some things. And so let's praise God. And also, that was pretty smart by me too. Like he might be able to kind of split it or he might be able to complain and say, God, I've done all this and this is the best I can get from you is just you, you deliver me to a cave. But he doesn't do any of that because he's not at the center of this story. God is the center of this story. He sees God as the center of this story. And so he says, let's praise the Lord. He delivered me. He did it. And, and he uses some strange means, right? The means of David acting insane. But God did this. If we want to be a people who are going to praise God, bless God in all circumstances and situations, if we want to make boasts, a boast that's going to last beyond our, our pitiful strength 
and might and knowledge, if we're going to live lives, our lives without complaint that can actually bless the Lord at all times, we're going to have to have a God-centered view of life, a God-centered view of our own lives, with God at the center of our life, with God at the center of our identity, then we will always have reason to praise the Lord, to bless his name, to boast in him in all times and all circumstances. And that's what David has resolved to do. And he calls on others to join this. Join this glad-hearted praise. And he gets a little bit more specific on what they're joining in on. He gives, in a sense, in verses 4 through 7, his testimony. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. And those who look to him are radiant and their, their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. There's his testimony. Somewhere in the flight to Gath, and then the flight from Gath, he sought the Lord, he looked to the Lord, he cried out to the Lord, and in his distress, in his fear, in his poverty, in his troubles, he turns to the Lord, and here's what he says, what the Lord did, he heard me, he answered me, he delivered, he saved. This gives him confidence to say, not just of himself, but look at verse 5. Those who look to him, this will happen. Or verse 7, those who fear him, this is what will happen. Those who look to him are radiant, their faces shall never be ashamed. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. He's drawing them into this experience as well. And so this isn't just for me, this is for those. Now both of those, verses 5 and 7, are Exodus images. You remember that Moses, he goes up onto the mountain He's speaking with the Lord. He's getting the Ten Commandments. He comes down. His face is shining. He goes into the Holy of Holies. He comes out. His face is shining. He, he looks to the Lord. And he comes away shining. And David looked to the Lord. And he came away shining. And he says, verse 5, those who look to the Lord can come away shining. They can experience the, the blessing that Aaron spoke about. In Numbers chapter 6, he says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. That's, that's about having the favor of the Lord. Him being, directing his favor at you. Verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord encamps around his people. You look at Exodus chapter 14. This is a, an instance of the angel encamping around the people in a vivid way. The angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, this is, they're, they're moving out of Egypt as this is written, right? Like they're, they're on their way. And he is going before them as they moved out, and then he went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from behind them before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt, which had come out to kill them, and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Here's the angel of the Lord encamping all around the people of God. And what David does is he finds his story in that same vein. He's like that kind of protection that they had that night where the angel of the Lord is behind them and in between them and all around them and camping their, their people. He's like, that's how the Lord acted toward me. That is how he protected me. That is how he delivered me. Just like at the Red Sea, he did that for me. And again, he, he's not saying that this is my exclusive experience and it can't happen to anybody else. The shining that he talks about, the, the radiance and the angel of the Lord are tied in Exodus to the presence of God with his people, that he's there in their midst. 
giving favor, giving blessing, giving protection, giving deliverance. And David connects his story to that story to say that God was present with me to deliver me. In 1 Samuel, and you look in 1 Samuel 21, there is absolutely no mention of any of these things. There's no mention in that story of God's voice. There's no mention of some sort of great display of God's power. There is no, dis- no sign from God. There's no cloud that he sees. There is no angel that he sees in that story anywhere. What we see in that story is actually really strange. It's just David there pretending and fleeing. That's kind of it. And yet those are the means that God used to deliver and to save. Strange means, but the same end that we got next to us, we get from David. And David says, it's not exclusive to me. It's for those, verse 5, who look to him. It's for those who fear him, in verse 7. So those, what should they do? They should do what he says to do in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Here's the invitation from David to know and experience God for themselves. Right? Taste. It's it's an encouragement to to have some sort of personal interaction. And the same kind of interaction that, that Moses and Israel had and David had. He's inviting them into that. I love that he says, like he has no doubt in his mind that the Lord is good. You just have to taste him. He's not worried like, oh, I don't know if you're going to like this if you taste it. Or your taste buds may be different than mine. He just says, no, you taste and he is this. Like, and so that's why he invites people into it. He knows what it's going to be like when it's there. Right? He knows what, he's gonna, what they're going to experience from God if they really experience him. And so he's encouraging them to join into this experience. God is good, and he says, verse 8, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Verse 9, he says, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Those who fear him have no lack. The young lions, they, they suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Israel was a nation that knew no lack, though they are wandering in a wilderness for many days. In chapter 2, verse 7 of Deuteronomy, listen to what it says there. It says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. David says, I was on the run. I went to uh, Gath. That didn't work. I was on the run again. I've been in this cave. And in All of those places, I was a man with no lack because I sought my refuge in the Lord. He says lions, the top of the food chain, even young lions, top of the food chain, they can suffer want and hunger. But those who fear the Lord, those who seek this Lord, those who taste and see him, they will lack nothing. Though he was chased by Saul, though he was fleeing from Gath and and to Gath and from Gath, though he was living in a cave, he says, I lacked nothing. God was my refuge. And so what does he say? Taste and see the same. Seek this Lord that I have known. He didn't expect his experience and his circumstance to be something that would be shared by everyone. What he did expect was that that Lord who was in the midst of that experience and in the midst of those circumstances would be the same for anyone who would seek him. Verse 4, 
I sought the Lord, and He answered me. Verse 10, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Like, there's a seeking in verse 4 that He did, and then He invites them into it in verse 10. You seek the Lord, those who seek Him. He's calling on people, God's people, to seek the Lord in any and all circumstances, to taste and see that He's good. No matter what is happening, He wants them to have a personal experience with the same God that He knows. He wants them to get in on it by tasting, by fearing, by seeking this Lord who delivered him. Now let's not be disconnected from Psalm 34 with the idea that like we've never had to flee from our king like Saul, like he had to flee from Saul. We've never had to act insane, or maybe you have had to act insane, I don't know. Most of you probably haven't had to act insane in order to escape a situation. Right? Most of us haven't lived in caves. And so our experiences is vastly different. But let's not be disconnected from Psalm 34 because we need to connect where Psalm 34 wants us to connect. That the Lord who is the Lord of David's deliverance in Psalm 34 is the same Lord today. Like, same Lord. This is the one that he is calling us to know and experience as well. He's the same character. He has the same kind of disposition toward his people. He, he is moving in the same ways. He is the one who can always be tasted and found good, who can always be sought and found to be a refuge. He is always the one who, if you call out to him for deliverance, will deliver. So we, we have fears. We have opportunities for shame. We have troubles. We have vulnerabilities. We have these vulnerabilities to be abandoned and isolated like David was in 1 Samuel 21 by multiple parties. And he says, I have no lack. David too is telling us like you can have these kinds of experiences as well. You might have these kinds of fears, troubles, anxiety, all these things that are going on. And David says, in the midst of that, if you seek the Lord, you can have no lack. It's to look to his promises in his word to call upon him in the midst of our troubles and to trust that he's going to deliver us. Those who follow him will find him to be good, will find him to be a refuge. And so David says, seek him. Where, where do we turn in the midst of our fears, in our troubles, in our vulnerabilities? Psalm 34 says, seek the Lord in those places. So what does it mean to seek the Lord? I love how he, he portrays this and how poetry often does this. It says it one way and then it'll say it a different way and then a different way and then a different way. And so you're like, what is he actually, is he telling us to seek the Lord or is he telling us to taste the Lord? I don't know which one. Like, yes, all those. He, he says, look to the Lord, cry out to the Lord, fear the Lord, taste the Lord, take refuge in the Lord. This, all of these are calling us to know and trust and to call on this Lord, to seek the Lord. It's to look to his promises in his word and to trust them and to walk in obedience. It's to pray to him, to ask him for things. It's to personally pursue the Lord in our lives. It's to venture on him, yeah, venture wholly, to seek him in any and all circumstances with the trust, with the faith that he is good. It's to trust in his deliverance even when we can't see it. It doesn't mean that if we're going to seek the Lord that there's not going to be any fleeing from Saul's or hiding in caves it doesn't mean any of that. What it does mean is that in the midst of those places, that the Lord who was the Lord then is going to be the Lord of us now in our troubles. Amen. The same Lord that David found in the cave, the same Lord that Israel found at the Red Sea, is the same Lord who we can have as our refuge if we would seek Him. And so we too can look and we can come away shining. We too can know that the Lord's presence is with us. We can seek 
and find a life of no lack if we seek him. That's what David wants his people to do. That's what he wants us to do. Taste and see. Seek the Lord personally. He, he learned from his experience and he wanted them to learn from his experience. And that's where he goes in verse 11. Verse 11, he says, Come, O children, and listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Verse 11 is, is a shift somewhat to, to moving like David speaking poetically and like he normally would in the Psalms, so almost speaking like he's, he's writing a proverb in verses 11 through 22. Even the, the topic, the fear of the Lord, is right there in the beginning, and he speaks to children as you hear the Proverbs as well, and even the way he writes it, not perfect, precise promises, but generally accepted truths for people to hear. Verses 11 through 22 move in that direction, so it's kind of proverbial how he speaks. And he says, verse 11, come and I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. It's this joyful awe, this, this affectionate reverence. It's a, a leaning toward the Lord in, in hope and in trust. It's to be under his control, to obey him, but to want to be under his control, to love his lordship. You might see this displayed in, in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, he sees this vision of the Lord in the temple high and lifted up and the seraphim are there and they're calling out, holy, holy, holy. And his response in the midst of this overwhelming greatness of this God, the holiness of this God is woe is me. But his words don't stop there. And the story doesn't stop there. And angels, they take a burning coal and they put it on his tongue and they say, your sins have been atoned for. And you know what happens after that? God asks the heavens, hey, who's going to go for us? Whom can I send? And what does Isaiah do? He's not running in fright because woe is me anymore. He says, here am I. Send me. I'm ready to be your servant, whatever you want me to do. That's the fear of the Lord. Understanding his greatness and holiness that... In a, since would always have to make us say, woe is me, but not always saying, woe is me, because the Lord acts and moves and accepts, and then what do we do with that happens? When we draw near to God rightly, we, we want to be sent. I'll do whatever you want. How could I not serve you? That's the fear of the Lord. Isaiah surely found the Lord more powerful and more holy than he'd imagined, but he also found him in that same scene way more merciful and loving than he could have imagined as well. And so he says, I'll do anything for you. He moves from woe is me to send me. And that's what David wants us to do when we walk in the fear of the Lord. Isaiah's fright gave way to joyful obedience. He, he wasn't working to gain something from God. His sin had been atoned for, you know, kind of symbolically by that burning coal. And so now, from his place of acceptance, from his place of atoned sin, from his place of right standing with God, he says, send me anywhere to do anything. And that's what the fear of the Lord looks like. Joyful obedience before him. One author says it this way, that it looks like loving good and hating evil. It looks like trusting God, there's reverence, and obeying God. And that matches well the first instruction that David gives on the fear of the Lord. Hating evil, trusting God, walking in obedience. Look at verse 12. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is a lot like Deuteronomy again. One of the promises in Deuteronomy, or one of the commands, was to honor your parents. And it's the first command with a promise that may go well with you. 
Similar language as that, but we read this in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. This is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded, commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. And that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. You see the fear of the Lord walking hand in hand with it going well with them? And you see these, this propped up by hating evil and doing good, walking in obedience to the Lord? All of these go together. The, the fear of the Lord is something that's not like a, a cerebral only thing, something that's knowledge in your head alone. It's very much on the ground. After that, in Deuteronomy, he gives them the Shema, and he's going to say, you need to teach this when you're walking by the way. Whatever you're doing, you're in the house, you're cooking, you're like, teach these kinds of commandments, because it's on the ground. It's not something you just, like, it's up in the sky and it's cerebral. It's on the ground. It's experiential. It's practical. That matches taste and see, too, doesn't it? It's personal. It's practical. And so he says, like, keep your tongue from evil. There's speech there. And hate evil. Don't, don't walk in the way of evil. There's acts, speech and acts, words and deeds. This is on the ground. That's what the fear of the Lord does, is it gets us on the ground in a way that walks in trust and obedience to this God. And in Proverbs, there's so much on the tongue, right? So again, he's, he's mirroring some of that. Like the, the words of your mouth are like sword thrusts. Or they heal. So keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. There's all kinds of things in the book of Proverbs about staying away from evil. Don't hold a fire close to your chest. You're going to get burned. You know that adulterous woman's house? Don't go close to that house. You're going to, she's going to take you down into death. In the book of Proverbs, there's ideas of, of pursuing peace. Right? Wisdom is calling out in the streets, come after me. And when you have a life of wisdom, there's the life of peace. And the practical side of the fear of the Lord is on the ground, working its way out in obedience to God, but it's also partnered with something that you know, right? The fear of the Lord, and to walk in the fear of the Lord has a knowledge. And here's the knowledge that one who walks in the fear of the Lord should have. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. To walk in the fear of the Lord is to know you have the Lord's ear. It is to know that the Lord hears. Yeah, I'm getting, it's rhyming words everywhere. Fear and ear and hear. It's to know, verse 6, right? He is the one who, I cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard me. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. It's to know that that's true. It's to know that the Lord hears in the midst of whatever's going on. And what David wants to do is to say, that's not true for everybody. Look at what he says here. That's not true for the wicked. And they call out. The Lord's face is not toward them. His ear is not toward. They have no guarantee of his ear. They have no guarantee that he will hear. His face is not with, but against those who do evil. The very nature of David telling them this is to say, don't go that way. It is to warn. It is to tell them, to provide another opportunity for them to turn away from evil and to do good. Because if you're going to do evil, the Lord does not hear you, and ultimately the memory of your life is going to be wiped out. So turn away from this. It's a warning. 
Now, maybe this morning you're walking in wickedness. I want to tell you that you can have hope, but I want verse 16 to actually jar you. That the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. He doesn't just approve of us no matter what we do. And I, I hope is that verse 16 awakens you to the reality of a life of wickedness. And to instead encourage you to do something like verse 8, to taste and see that the Lord is good and that you could be blessed if you take refuge in Him. To do what verse 14 says to do, to turn away or repent from evil and do good, to seek peace and to pursue it. Now, if your experience is that verse 16 seems to be true for your life, like I'm not sure if the Lord is hearing anything, seems as if His face is against me, then I think it is always appropriate to ask, and where do I stand before the Lord? Perhaps He's not hearing me because I don't care about Him. Or I am harboring and treasuring this wickedness more than Him. And maybe there's something there to turn away from. But here's what we need to know, whether we can feel it, sense it, or know it or not. He says that it is true for the righteous that God hears. The righteous, that is those who look to God in faith. That's what the righteous are. You could describe them by the way David describes so many things here in this chapter. Like this is one who looks to the Lord. This is one who cries out to the Lord. This is one who rightly fears the Lord, a leaning toward the Lord, who tasted, has tasted and seen that he's good. And he says, if that's you, if you're that righteous one who you have trusted in this God, then you have the certainty of the Lord's ear when you call out to him. God hears the righteous when they cry for help. He hears them in their troubles. I love that he doesn't explain why you're calling out for help. And if it fits under these qualified categories, then the Lord will hear. I like that he doesn't say it's, it's these kinds of troubles. You know, if you're in a cave kind of troubles, if you're being persecuted by Saul kind of troubles. He doesn't do that. He says, when you call for help and, and troubles, like we could put all kinds of things into those categories. And I think that's gracious of God. And he says, in those places, if you're righteous, you call out to me, you trust me, you call out to me, I'm going to hear you. Now remember, we, we spoke about this in the book of Romans, but prayer is a, a wartime walkie-talkie. It is the, we're, we're needing God. We're in the middle of the battle and, and things are blowing up all around and we need His help and we pick up the wartime walkie-talkie. But that is a little bit detached and a little bit cold, isn't it? And we get to fill it in with the certainty of verse 34 because when you get on, I mean, I've never been in war, but if you get on the walkie-talkie in war, there's not always the, the opportunity to talk to the other side. There, there's not always a, a clear connection that you can hear and they can hear and we all know what's going on. But Psalm 34 gives us those kinds of certainties, doesn't it? He, it gives you the kind of certainty that if you get on the wartime walkie-talkie, the command is going to hear you and they're going to know exactly what you need and all the supplies. And by the way, this command center has supplies in infinite amounts in order to give you what you need. And if one knows that in the heat of the battle, that at any time that I can get the general on the phone and he can give me anything that I need and I will be delivered from it, that'll give you a confidence that'll change your life. There'd be no hesitation to follow his orders if he says, yeah, the battle's really hard right there. But remember, I, I hear you in your prayers. I hear you when you call to me. There'd be no hesitation, like, I'll do it. I'll go because I know at any time I can get you and I can get whatever supplies I need and you will deliver me. There'd be no hesitation even in the difficulty and there'd be no hesitation to actually call out in trouble and say, I need help. 
because I know the general's going to be there, and he knows and understands the situation and how to go after it. And that's what Psalm 34 kind of certainty is giving us in the midst of our wartime walkie-talkie. It says that for those who fear the Lord, he hears you. There's certainty that he hears you in your troubles. He heard Moses when he was calling out, like, what am I supposed to do? The Egyptians are going to destroy us. Like, he heard him. He heard David when he's in this cave. I need help. He heard him when he was crying out for him at Gath, like, man, I'm surrounded by enemies. Deliver me. He heard Jonah. Here's one who's in trouble. Like, he gets swallowed by a fish. He's in the belly of a fish. It's harder to get in, in more difficult trouble than that. And he calls out there and the Lord hears him, spits him out on dry land. God doesn't hear because of the right location then. Those are all over the place. He, he doesn't hear because their tone was right. Like as if David hit the right tone and tenor in the cave and then, then Jonah could somehow capture the same tone in the, in the belly. Sounded a little different there, didn't it? He didn't hear them because their words were, were the right kind of words that unlocked the, the right channel for God to hear. He, he heard them because he's the God who hears his people in their troubles. He's the God who hears the righteous. The Bible gives us in prayer, one author says, not an art of prayer, it presents the God of prayer. Psalm 34 isn't telling us, here's how you pray. It's telling, here's what God is like. And if you seek him, he'll hear you. Gives us the, the God of prayer. Psalm 34 is giving us certainty that when we seek the Lord, he's going to hear us. He will answer. I like how one poet put it, one hymn. When all things seem against us to drive us to despair... We know one gate is open, one ear will hear our prayer. Church, one ear is all you need when that ear belongs to the Lord. This, this seeking the Lord and calling out to the Lord is not about a formula. It's about a God who hears His people who call out to Him. Now, walking in the fear of the Lord means you, you know that. You, you have a sense of certainty that when I call out to Him, He hears me. And it makes use of that by actually calling out to him. He hears and he's near. All right, so we have walking in fear and he have his ear and he hears and now he's near in verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushing spirit. Don't we love again that that's not clearly like only brokenhearted in this way? Only crushing spirit in this way? But here's the Lord coming to the midst of your circumstance, your brokenheartedness, your being crushed. He says, I'm near there. Whatever you put there, that's where the Lord can be. What a comfort from the Lord. And Scripture's full of these kinds of things, right? Hagar, she's in great distress. She runs away because she's kind of been driven out. And the Lord meets her there. Think about Elijah. Just had this great victory at Mount Carmel, but he runs for his life knowing that his life is, and his days are numbered in a different way, and he's, just, he's completely depressed. He wants to die, and the Lord meets him there. I think about Paul, he says, we were distressed beyond even life itself, and the Lord met him there and was merciful to him there. No 
mountaintop experiences needed for us to be met by the closeness of our God. You don't get nearer by all these emotions getting fixed. You don't get nearer by going to a certain location. You don't get nearer by any of those things. God can meet you in the midst of your brokenheartedness and being crushed. And so if you're crushed, you're not exempt from the Lord being near. And that's good news because sometimes we're going to be crushed. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Paul talked about being crushed. The righteous are people who are often crushed. There's verse 12. You want to live a good life, love many days, they may see good, right? Walk in the fear of the Lord, but walking in the fear of the Lord doesn't guarantee that you're going to see tons of days and that they're all going to be really easy and that you're going to perceive them as good. The righteous could be afflicted and the wicked could be afflicted. All of those are there. But he says, but those who fear the Lord know that the Lord will deliver them. And then the questions come, but does he really? Think about Peter. Did he deliver Peter? Peter died, in case you were wondering. Paul, did he deliver Paul? Paul died. Did he deliver David? David died. These are all people who experienced great suffering that God didn't pull them out of. So does he or does he not do this? Like, what's the answer? Does he really deliver or does he not? Did he deliver or didn't he? And the answer is yes. Think about Peter for a second. He's in prison. People are praying for him. The Lord hears because he hears the prayers of his people and he delivers them out of prison. Think about later in his life. We don't have this written for us in scripture, but we know Peter likely goes before Caesar, goes before the court and loses his head. Did the Lord deliver him? Yeah, he did. You know, Peter was delivered, and then he died and was delivered, right? You see what I'm saying? Like, there wasn't the end when he lost his head or was crucified upside down or whatever actually happened to him. He was either going to be delivered or he was going to be delivered, and that happened. Paul, did he deliver Paul? Like, yeah, he, got, he delivered Paul out of all kinds of things. And then Paul, likely he got his head you know, chopped off too. Did he deliver Paul? Oh, yeah, Paul says, nothing could separate me. Like, I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Did it, was I delivered? I think Paul would say, oh, yeah, you better believe I was delivered. Like, you can either be delivered or delivered. So when you're in affliction, and when you're traveling or praying with someone who's in affliction, and they're saying, I don't even know if I can be delivered. It seems like I'm only in affliction. It's like, well, if you trust in the God, you can be delivered or you can be delivered. Those are your options. What hope and comfort does that give us as his people? Delivered or delivered? Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. Delivered or delivered? David's son, he dies after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And you know what he says? I think in a word of hope, he says, he's not going to return to me, but I'll go to him. He has hope beyond the grave. So, Does the Lord deliver us out of all of our afflictions? Well, maybe not how we think, but he delivers those who trust in him. And there's a reason for this hope, because this is the God, not of the dead, but the God of the living. He's delivered in the past, and and he's already connected his story to Exodus, and he says, we can trust this God to deliver again. And he, he refers back to that past again in verse 20. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. That seems like a strange, like, where did you get that? That's from the Passover, in the Passover, they prepared the Passover lamb, and as they prepared the Passover lamb, they weren't to break any bones. Like, prepare this lamb, but don't break any bones. And David is saying, I'm seeing my own deliverance 
in line with the deliverance that God had at Passover. That, that I'm in that same vein, same thread of deliverance, how God pulled them out of Egypt and brought them to a promised land. He pulled me out of my situation. He delivered me in the same kinds of way. And that is offered not just to me, but he says what? It's to those who fear the Lord. Verse 21 says, Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. And the Lord redeems the life of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. If we're looking at these verses, we need to know, like if we're looking at affliction as distinguishing who's wicked and who's righteous, we're looking in the wrong place. Like affliction, present, affliction's presence or not is not going to distinguish for us whether a person is righteous or wicked. It is a present life kind of thing and is not going to be a marker for wickedness or righteousness. The only way that we distinguish is, is the Lord. He's the one who distinguishes between these things. And it says that he will. The wicked are going to be condemned, but not the righteous. They will not be condemned. Those who seek the Lord are going to find in him to be a refuge and won't be condemned. In Gath and in the cave, David took refuge in the Lord by looking to him, by calling out to him for deliverance. And it wasn't his strength and wisdom and ability and power that he relied on to save him, but his God. And he says, if you do this, you won't be condemned. In Egypt, Israel took refuge in the Lord by killing the Passover lamb and putting the blood around their doorpost without breaking a bone of that lamb because he told them not to and so that it wasn't their strength and wisdom and ability they had to rely on in this circumstance. It was the Lord. He is the one who, if you look to him and walk in the fear of him, he is the one who would deliver. And so how do we do this? How do we take refuge in the Lord? Like we're not to you know, prepare a lamb without breaking a bone. That's not our role. We're not living in a cave right now. Like, how do we take refuge in the Lord right now? In the same way, right? The manner is not relying on our own strength and ability and power and wisdom and might, but by in any and all circumstances looking to the Lord and finding in Him our power and strength and refuge and all that we need, finding it in Him. And that our God has provided a refuge for us. Like, think about this. It goes even further than what David knew. When, when John writes his gospel, John the Baptist is baptizing people, and he looks at this one, and he says of him, this Jesus, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in the end of John's gospel, do you know what John writes? In John chapter 19, verse 36, this is as Jesus has died, and it says, of him, remember they came along and they're like, should we break their bones and get them off there for the Sabbath so that they can celebrate? Let's be done with it. No, they didn't do that. He was already dead. And John says, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's Exodus 12, that's Psalm 34, and now John 19, verse 36. There's the refuge that God has provided for us. The Lamb of God has been given so that we might find our refuge in him. I wonder, as Jesus was dying on the cross, and we have evidence, obviously, from his dying on the cross that he was reciting some psalms, praying some psalms. I wonder, as he was dying, if he recalled Psalm 34. And as he hung and was exasperated with even trying to, to get a breath, but knowing that his end was soon and that all of his bones were intact, I wonder if he thought, just as we planned. 
And because he went to that cross as the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God, who cannot just cover over death for one night, but can be the one that death will then, if we trust in this blood, put this blood around our life, this is the one who can take away sin for all time. If we, we, because he did all those things, he can actually take away sin, and all who would look to him and call out to him and would be brokenhearted before him and crushed before him, we can look to him as the one who in him we can find our refuge. So much so that Paul can say, and let me make sure you guys know that anyone in Christ Jesus, if you're in him, there is no condemnation for such a one. He says, oh yeah, you might think that some things might separate you from God so that you might be condemned. Actually, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not starvation or famine or sword or danger. None of those things will work. No, actually, in Him, if you look to Him for refuge, you will find an eternal refuge. And so as we think about how can we seek the Lord, how can we walk in the fear of the Lord, it means finding our refuge Walking in the fear of this Christ. This is the one each of us needs. This is the one each of us should taste and see. This is the one we need to seek continually and find our refuge in. And if we have, he gives us refuge, not just now, but for all eternity. And if we have trusted in this one, we have great hope that he will hear us no matter our prayers, knowing that he has made us his sons, has sent our elder brother to be our intercessor and meteor at the right hand of God. We can have great hope in the midst of our troubles that he will deliver us or he will deliver us. If you're in Christ Jesus, he has commanded you to take a meal of remembrance of what he has done a meal of remembrance that he has delivered and he is going to deliver. This is a meal of deliverance and deliverance. To remember, this is his work. This is a God who has heard. This is a God who continues to hear. And this is a God who is still near. I love what one author has said that we are meant to see and hear in this meal. J.I. Packer, sorry the print is small. He says, we also learn the divinely intended discipline of drawing assurance from this meal. We should be saying as we take this meal in our hearts, as sure as I see and touch and taste this bread and this wine or juice, so sure is it that Jesus Christ is not a fancy but a fact, that he is for real and that he offers me himself to be my savior, my bread of life, and my guide to glory. He has left me this right, this gesture, this token, this ritual action as a guarantee of this grace. He instituted it, and it is a sign of life-giving union with him. And I'm taking part in it. Thus, I know that I am his, and he is mine forever. That's the assurance that we should be drawing from our sharing in the Lord's Supper every time we come to the table. If you have that sense of assurance that I am his, and he is mine, this meal is for you. If you don't, we're going to say to you, taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you don't know what it looks like to do that, please find another Christian and ask them, how can I taste and see what you've tasted and seen? Let's pray together in preparation for this meal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know us through and through. 
better than we know ourselves, Lord. And you know that we are a fearful people. The most repeated phrase in the Bible is, do not fear. And it's because we fear things. We fear things that we shouldn't. We fear things that bring affliction and trouble and strife and suffering. But God, we don't have to live this way. We can fear you and know that the results will be deliverance. God, help us to fear you. Help us to know what that is. Teach us, Lord, as we struggle to obey your word, as we struggle to believe what you've said is true and good for us. When we, in moments, walk in unbelief, God, be quick, as we know you will be, to remind us of the destruction and the suffering that that kind of life will bring Lord, we want our boast to be in you. We want our identity to be attached to you. And so often we look to other things. Lord, show us where we're blind. Help us to see our weakness. And give us the desire, Lord, as we see from King David, to make our story point to the big story. Give us a heart to not want the recognition and the praise for ourselves, Lord, but to want it for you because of the knowledge you've given us that you sustain all life, that you are the giver of all good things. Help us to take that knowledge, Lord, and to just allow it in faith to fix our hearts, to change us, and then to hold it up to the world, God, that it may render change in those who don't know you, Lord. We are grateful for your faithfulness to us. We're grateful, Lord, that you have made yourself available to us in Christ. The suffering that he endured so that we could miss it. It's why we take this meal, Lord. We remember what happened and we look forward to the deliverance that's promised because of it. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.